Prairie View Christian Church. If you haven't been here recently, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And this is actually week 12 of the Gospel of Mark. And some of you are thinking, it feels like work week 112. But that's okay. It's week 12, and next week is the last week. And the reason we've been going through the Gospel of Mark is because I think at times, churches focus so much on Jesus' birth at Christmas, and then they focus so much on Jesus' death at Easter, that there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in between that we don't really pay that much attention to. And so we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus. Not just the birth, not just the death, but the life. And last week in particular, we read through Mark chapter 12. And Mark chapter 12 really was all about what it means to love God. What it means to love God. You see, these religious leaders come up to Jesus, and if you've been here through this series, you've heard this time and time and time again. Religious leaders come to Jesus. They try to mess him up. They try to slip him up. They try to get him to say something wrong. And up to this point, he hasn't done it. Not once. He gives them correct answers. In fact, he gives them more than correct answers, better than correct answers. And so they have to resort to try something else. Their tricks haven't worked. Jesus hasn't shot himself in the foot, and there's no signs that he's going to do it anytime soon. So they have to find something a little bit more drastic to do if they really want to shut this guy up. This guy who keeps rocking the boat, this guy who's challenging the status quo. They're going to have to be a little bit more creative and a little bit more sinister if they want to shut this guy up. And in Mark chapter 12, there's one thing that Jesus says that may be most important out of everything in the chapter. And it's when a scribe comes to him and asks him what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is better than burnt offerings. This is better than sacrifices. This is better than ritual. This is better than trying to appear more spiritual than everyone else. This is better than the person who just gives huge sums of money to the temple to try and impress other people. What it means to love God is to love him with every ounce of your being and to let that love shape how you love your neighbor. That's the idea that Jesus gets at when he talks about what it really means to love God. And then we go into chapter 13. And we're not going to spend a ton of time in Mark chapter 13 today, but Mark chapter 13, the entire chapter, is often referred to as the farewell discourse of Jesus. This is the last really long extended speech that Jesus gives before his death. And if you remember, last week we started looking at the life of Jesus, but all this is happening within a seven-day time frame from when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So all of chapter 12... All of 13, 14, 15, 16, all happening within seven days. A lot to cram into just seven days' time. But when we get to Mark chapter 13, Jesus knows that the end is near. And so he uses this time to do two things in Mark chapter 13. In verses 1 through 23, he prophesies that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It's going to be laid waste. And that would happen in 70 A.D., only about 35 years after Jesus died and rose again. So he was right about that. And that would have been a huge deal to the people who were hearing him speak because the temple was one of those last beacons of hope 
that the Jewish people had left to remind them of when they were on top, when they were in control, when they were top dog. And that reminded them of that. But on top of that, it gave them hope that maybe that would happen again, that maybe they would be returned to glory. Maybe the Messiah would put them back where they belong because they can take everything else. But guess what? The temple's still there. That was what they thought. Then in verses 24 through 37, Jesus does something even bigger than just prophesying that the temple is going to be destroyed. Verses 24 through 37 are typically understood to be Jesus prophesying the time that he will return. And scripture teaches that Christ will return. The last time that we see Jesus is not the resurrection. It's not the ascension. We will see Jesus again. And when we see that, the beauty of it is that when Jesus returns, God's kingdom is truly seen for what it really is. You see, God's kingdom is abound right now, but in a certain way, you can't really see it. Because as you look at the newspaper, as you watch the news, you think, man, if this is God's kingdom, I don't know that I really want to be a part of it. Because this world is messed up. But when Christ returns, we fully see the kingdom for what it truly is. No more blinders. It's not hidden anymore. It's obvious. It's there and everyone can see it. And the way Revelation would word it is that every tear is wiped from their eyes. There's no more oppression. There's no more injustice. There's no more pain. There's no more hopelessness. And so followers of Christ, we look forward eagerly to that day when Christ returns. But in the meantime, what do we do? It hasn't happened yet. We love God. And we love our neighbor. And there's a couple of verses I want to mention in Mark chapter 13, just because they are important. It's verses 32 and 33. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. The reason I read that to you is because it is very popular for preachers to predict when Christ is going to return. There was a guy in the 1800s named William Miller, and he gathered a bunch of followers, and he predicted that Jesus would return on a certain date in the 1840s. So all of his followers, they sold their possessions, they quit their jobs, they just put all their eggs in that basket. They meet up on a hill, waiting for Jesus to come back, and crickets. Nothing happens. Jesus doesn't come back. So then William Miller says, okay, well, I got my calculation wrong. Give me two years, two years from now, meet here, same time, same place. Jesus will be here. I promise my word. Okay, we can give you two years. It's a little bit inconvenient that we're not going to have jobs for two years, but okay. So two years rolls around. They show back up. Jesus doesn't come back. A little bit frustrating if you're those people. And then, of course, there's even been more contemporary attempts to predict when Jesus would come back. If you remember May 21st, 2011, does anyone remember May 21st, 2011? There was a preacher named Harold Camping, and he taught that Jesus would return that day. And he did it because, you know, you take the amount of verses in the book of Psalms and then you multiply that by 12 because that's how many tribes of Israel there were. And then you divide that by seven because that's the number of perfection in the Bible. And there you go. There's the date. Jesus will return this day. And Harold Camping said, May 21st, 2011, people quit their jobs, just like William Miller's followers did. They sold everything. 
They put all their money into billboards that said, May 21st, 2011, are you ready? Get ready. They put signs on their cars. And guess what? May 21st, 2011 rolls around. Nothing happens. So, like William Millard, Harold Camping says, you know what? I miscalculated. It's October. It's actually October of this year. Okay. October rolls around. Still no Jesus. And then finally, who could forget December 21st, 2012. And this was not really so much about Jesus' return, but more just the end of the world. The Mayan calendar predicted the end of the world, December 21st, 2012. And everyone was all bent out of shape and all worked up about it. And it's June 23rd of 2013. So there have been a lot of failed attempts to predict when this is going to happen. And the whole point that I want to get across, the reason I shared those two verses, is that we don't know when it will happen. We will not know when it will happen. There's no way of somehow calculating with some special formula when it's going to happen. We don't know. So what do we do in the meantime? Like we just said, we love God and we love our neighbor and we eagerly look forward to when that happens. But we don't know when it's going to be. And don't listen to anyone who tells you otherwise. So, now this is the point in my sermon where I kind of have a confession to make. This was a really, really busy week for me. And my sermon is on Mark chapter 13 and chapter 14. But I didn't get to chapter 14. I didn't have time to study all of it. So I didn't get the elder's approval, but I made an executive decision. I asked a guest preacher to come and speak about Mark chapter 14. And don't worry, don't fire me. He is more than qualified. He is more than capable of speaking on this topic. So just a second, and I will grab him for you. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I'm Peter. Yes, the Peter. That's me. Ben told me that he really did not have a ton of time this week to study for a sermon. You know, the NBA finals were on. There was a concert Wednesday night. And so he just got busy and he needed a break. And so he asked me to come in and fill in for him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share Mark chapter 14. But the thing is, Mark chapter 14 is my story. It really is my story. And if you've been in this sermon series for a while now, reading through Mark's gospel, you might not have all that positive of an image of me. There were times when I was a little bit clueless. There were times when I was a little bit stubborn. But my story doesn't end there. And even though you may have an unflattering picture of me up to this point, the reason I'm willing to share today is because I know my story doesn't end there. You see, I'm hanging out with Jesus, and we enter Jerusalem, and things seem a little bit different than usual. You know, Jesus was always a cool customer, but this time he seems a little bit more focused than he had before. He never seemed like this before. So we enter Jerusalem, and we end up eating dinner at this guy named Simon's house. And Simon was a leper, and naturally, this is something that I wasn't all that comfortable with, because lepers are gross. I didn't want to go eat with a leper. But Jesus says we have to go eat with the guy. So we walk into the guy's house, and we're eating with him. 
Well, this woman walks in. And we were all kind of wondering who the heck this woman was. And she comes in and she breaks this jar of expensive perfume on Jesus. And I'm looking around. We're all looking around thinking, what in the world is this woman doing? That's a lot of perfume that was worth a lot of money that could have been used for something way better than just pouring it on Jesus. And honestly, for a second, I was kind of concerned that it was one of those things where someone pours a, a bucket of blood on someone with a fur coat. I almost thought it was like a protest or something. But then Jesus ends up saying something different. He says that whether we realized it or not, what this woman did was honorable. It wasn't a waste. We looked at it and thought that you could have taken that perfume and sold it and given it to the poor. Fed a lot of hungry people. But then Jesus said that the thing she did would be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. That she would be remembered for all time. We had no idea what he meant. Up to this point, 50% of the time that Jesus talked, I had no idea what he was talking about. But I followed him anyway. So that happens. And then we go and have dinner. We have this Passover dinner. And Passover was something that we had celebrated for generations. It was the tradition that we celebrated to commemorate when Moses led our people out of Egypt, out of slavery, freed us from bondage, freed us from oppression. And so every single year, we would look back at that dinner and we remember what God did for us, how he saved us, how he delivered us. And we're sitting there eating the Passover meal and Jesus starts saying some things that were really, really weird that we hadn't heard before. He says that one of us is going to betray him. And naturally, we're all looking around like, it's not going to be me, right? It definitely won't be me. I won't betray you. Look at how much we've been through together. You really think I'm going to betray you at this point? But Jesus is positive that someone's going to betray him. One of us. And naturally, we're concerned about that. But then something else happens. This Passover meal is going on. And Jesus takes bread and he takes wine and he changes everything. This tradition that we had practiced for years and years and years and years. Jesus says that from now on, it's not about Egypt. It's not about slavery. It's not about Moses. Moses! The Moses! And Jesus says, no, it's about me. It's about me from now on. Because you see, the slavery that I'm going to deliver you from is greater than any slavery you ever experienced in Egypt. And we're thinking, dude, do you remember what happened to our people in Egypt? That was pretty bad. What could possibly be worse than that? Well, we would see down the road. But he changes communion and says it's all about him. And then something even worse happens. We finish dinner. We're all still confused about what's going on. Jesus seems like he's really kind of gone off the deep end. So we go and sing a hymn, and we're on the Mount of Olives, this mount really close to Jerusalem. And then I remember Jesus saying that the shepherd would be struck and that the sheep would scatter. We had no idea what he meant. And then we said, Jesus, look, we're not going to fall away from you. And Jesus said, yeah, you will. And actually, 
tell you what, Peter, you're going to fall away. In fact, before this night is over, before the rooster crows twice, he told me that I was going to deny him three times, that I was going to turn my back on him three times. And I remember being insulted by it, to be totally honest. After everything I had given up for him, after everything I left behind for him, he has the nerve to tell me that I'm going to deny him three times in one night. Thanks a lot, Jesus. I don't know what he's thinking. But then he emphasizes it. I told him it wouldn't happen. And emphatically, he tells me that, yes, it will happen. You will deny me. There's no doubt about it in Jesus's mind. So what could we do? All we could do is tell him, no, we're not going to deny you, Jesus. I said it. Everybody else said it. Now, I will admit this. There was a part of me that was thinking that the other guys, they might deny him. Because after all, I mean, I was a pretty good guy. I mean, I had it all together. I was kind of the leader at this point. And so, yeah, maybe the other guys would deny him. But Peter, (laughs) me, no, I'm not going to deny him. And here's the thing. I look back and I was young and I was arrogant and I was stubborn. And to be totally honest, I was pretty naive and I had no idea what was coming next. So then we go into Gethsemane, this beautiful garden. And we're in Gethsemane and Jesus takes all of us, the 12 of us, in the garden with him. But then he takes James and John and I a little bit farther away from the rest of the group. And he takes us and tells us to keep watch because he needs to go pray. We said, okay. So he goes off and he starts praying. And I remember specifically just barely overhearing, I was trying to kind of listen in, just barely overhearing Jesus say something about asking God to take this cup away from him. Take the cup away from him and not his will, but God's will. But as I was hearing that, my eyes got really, really heavy. I mean, it had been a really, really long day. It was hot. We had done tons of walking. And before I knew it, I wake up to Jesus. And he's not happy with me or James or John for falling asleep. And he wakes us up and he tells us that we need to stay awake and stay watch that we don't fall into temptation. Okay? And I'll say this, Jesus seemed different than usual. You know, he was always a cool customer. He seemed like he was always in control. He was calm. He was collected. But when Jesus woke me up that first time, I could tell that something wasn't right. He looked worried. He looked stressed. In fact, he almost looked scared. And when I saw Jesus scared, that's when I knew something was happening. Something wasn't right. So we tell Jesus, okay, we're sorry. We'll stay awake this time. And Jesus says, okay. So he goes off and prays. He comes back a second time. And then he says, guys, why aren't you awake? And then specifically, he says, Simon, which is my other name besides Peter. When you're important like me, you get two names. But he says, Simon, why aren't you awake? And I remember thinking, dude, James and John were sleeping too. 
Why are you calling me out specifically? They're just like me. But then he says, keep watch. And we really didn't have a comeback because he had told us to stay awake and we hadn't stayed awake. So we agreed. We tried to stay awake and he goes away again. And then finally, I wake up for a third time and Jesus is standing over me. But this time, he doesn't look scared. He doesn't look worried. He doesn't look distressed. He looks focused. Like he knew something was coming and he was ready for it. And when he woke me up that third time, he said that the hour had come. The hour had come. And that his betrayer was at hand. And as soon as he says that, I look up and there is a crowd of scribes and religious leaders and elders. And they're holding swords and clubs and torches. And guess who's leading the pack? Our old buddy Judas. The guy that we had been through so much together. The guy that I had laughed with, I had cried with. We'd been through so much, and he's leading the charge to arrest Jesus. I guess Judas, looking back, was the guy that Jesus was talking about, about betraying him. So Judas is leading the charge, and I remember this anger that just built up inside of me when I saw Judas walk over and give Jesus a kiss on the cheek. When that happened, I knew it wasn't looking good. I could put two and two together. I knew what was going on. And as soon as Judas kissed Jesus, they took him away from us. And now here's where the story gets good. Mark, I like Mark. He's a good guy. Mark wrote his gospel, and Mark says that one of the people standing by cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. He says that someone standing by did it. Here's the thing. It was me. It was me. I had the sword. I saw the servant. I thought I was trying to save Jesus, to protect Jesus, and so I cut off his ear. And I'm telling you, it was like Mike Tyson. It was incredible. It was just something else. And so I cut off the ear, and John talks about all this. You see, I don't know. I, I don't know if John just wanted to make me mad or what, but John says that it was me. He adds my name. But maybe Mark would, owed me a favor. I don't know. But either way, guilty as charged. It was me. It was gross. But I thought I was doing the right thing. But then as soon as I do that, I think I'm saving Jesus. I think that I'm saving his life, that I'm preventing the plan from all going awry. But then Jesus does not seem remotely interested in being saved. He does not seem remotely interested in being rescued from this mob. And he rebukes me. It's like he just gives up. So what do we do? We tried everything. We'd been there. We'd followed him. We'd listened to him. We'd learned from him. And when things got bad, we tried to save him. No one could say that I didn't try. What do we do? We fled. Every single one of us. We fled. And as I look back on it now, that saying about the shepherd being struck and the sheep fleeing, it makes a little bit more sense now as I look back at it. But you know, 
even though we all fled, I really wanted to know what was going to happen to Jesus. I really wanted to just kind of follow along at a distance. It was kind of like a train wreck, but you just can't keep your eyes off of it. I knew it was going to be ugly, but I had to know for sure what would happen. So I follow along at a distance. And then they take Jesus into this trial. And I remember thinking it was really, really weird that a trial was happening at night. That just seemed kind of shady to me. It didn't seem like that was right, that this trial would be happening at night. And I think there was even something in the law about not having a trial at night that wouldn't be fair. But I knew the religious leaders. I knew that they were not into following the rules when it came to getting rid of Jesus. They would do anything at this point to shut him up. In fact, I even remember hearing rumors as I stood in the courtyard that they had false witnesses with false charges. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? I don't know for sure what's going to happen, but this isn't going to end well. This is not going to end well for Jesus. And then I hear that they're sending him to Pilate. Good old Pilate. The guy that none of us really liked a whole lot, to be honest. Whenever I saw his campaign signs and yards, I ran over them with my chariot. So he gets sent to Pilate. And I can't help but wonder what's going on. And then this really annoying girl comes on the scene, okay? This really annoying little girl, the servant of one of the priests or something, she comes on the scene and she comes up to me and she says, Hey, I think I saw you with Jesus. And I remember thinking, oh gosh, what do I say? What do I say? And so I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can't think of it. Jesus? <laughs> Who's that? Well, the lady leaves me alone. The little girl, she leaves me alone. And then I heard a rooster crow. Okay. Not all that weird. I mean, roosters crow. That's just what they do. Didn't think anything of it. But I kind of decided to move out into the gateway to kind of try and distance myself from this girl because I was a little bit concerned that she might be figuring me out. So I go out to the gateway and she follows me and she says, hey, I know you were with him. And again, I told her, look, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea who this guy is. But then a third time happens. And she says again to all the people standing around her that I was with him because I was a Galilean. Clearly, I must have been with Jesus. And I remember saying, no, I was not with him. I don't know what you're talking about. In fact, I was so certain of my lie that I even called down a curse upon myself, trying to prove to her how honest I really was being. And then guess what happened? As soon as I said that, I heard a rooster crow for the second time. And when I heard that rooster crow, everything just came rushing back to me. I remembered everything that Jesus said. I remember everything he said. In that last conversation about how I would deny him three times. And it would happen when the rooster crowed twice. That was the lowest point of my life. 
I had no idea what to do. All I could do was cry. It was a rough night. Terrible moment in my life. And honestly, in Mark's gospel, that's pretty much the end of my story, at least. Mark doesn't say a whole lot else about me. But the reason I'm willing to share my story with you is because my story doesn't end in the gospel of Mark. There's more to my story. You see, in Acts chapter 2, not too long after Jesus will be raised, yeah, he's going to be raised. I couldn't believe it. But then when he was raised, I remembered how three different times he said it would happen, but, well, I didn't understand at the time. But my story wasn't over yet. In Acts chapter 2, I would preach a sermon for the first time that was unlike any sermon you had ever heard. And I don't want to brag too much about it, but it was pretty much the greatest sermon ever. <laughs> Let's be honest. And I preached this sermon. And you know what's different? What's weird is I read my story in this book. I read myself in Mark, and I was a scared, arrogant, naive, stubborn, clueless guy following Jesus. But then all of a sudden, my story shifts in Acts chapter 2. Things are different. All of a sudden, I was bold. I was strong. I was ready to go. I was ready to say whatever needed to be said for Jesus. So what's the difference? What is it that changed about me between Mark 14 and Acts 2? The answer is, the reason my story didn't end in Mark 14 is because Jesus' story didn't end the way I thought it would. You see, I typically thought, and I don't think I was off base to think this, I typically thought that when people die, they stay dead. Call me crazy. But then, Jesus doesn't stay dead. You see, there's a resurrection. And there's an ascension. And things are never the same. And the reason that I was different in Acts 2 than I was in Mark 14 is because I truly understood things through the light of the cross and through the light of not a closed tomb, but an empty tomb. And all of a sudden, things made sense to me in a way they hadn't before. And then you throw in the fact that I had the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, which that was kind of a new and scary thing, but that helped out quite a bit as well. And the reason I share my story with you is because... Realistically, if you really think about it, my story is your story. My story is your story. You see, every single one of us, we trust in our abilities. We trust in our skills. We trust in our talents. We think we have it all together. And then all of a sudden, there's a humbling moment where we realize that we don't have it all together. And the only reason that I got put back together, the only reason that I became the person that I became, was because I knew the end of the story with Jesus. My story is your story. You're probably in the same boat. At times you're stubborn. At times you're naive. At times you're arrogant. At times you think you've got it all together. But guess what? When you see Jesus for who he truly is, when you see the end of the story, when you see the empty tomb, 
everything makes sense. It all comes together. All those things that Jesus taught, all the things that Jesus said, all the healings that he did that were amazing in their own light, they all come together. And it all makes sense. And my life doesn't end with a rooster crowing. My life moved on. And I continued following Jesus. And you know, it wasn't easy. But it was worth it. I wouldn't change a thing. I have no regrets. And I still find it amazing at times that God still found a way to use me. You know, every time I heard a rooster crow, years after this all happened, every time I heard a rooster crow, I remembered that moment. And it made me realize just how much I need God. And it made me realize how much I needed to throw myself on his grace. Not on my own skills or talents or abilities or having it all together. I remembered. And the thing is that God invited me to continue serving him. Even after all these mistakes I made. And I'm telling you right now that he's extending you the same invitation to follow him. No matter what kind of mistakes you've made, your mistakes may not be like mine, but mistakes are mistakes. We're all sinful. We all mess up. We're all incomplete. And so what do we do? We ask God to give us new hearts. We throw ourselves on his mercy. And I am a living testament to tell you it works. And it was worth it. And I wouldn't change a thing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. God, it is a privilege to follow you. It is a privilege to serve you, to know you. And God, I pray that you will help us to learn from the life of Peter. And I pray that we will realize that his story is all of our stories. God, I pray that we won't trust in our own abilities, but that we'll throw ourselves at your feet, trust in your mercy. God, give us new hearts because we so need them. Our sin just overpowers us at times. And God, the only cure we could possibly have is you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for the empty tomb. God, I pray that we will leave here more in awe of your power, of your beauty, of your glory, of your grace, of your forgiveness, of your authority. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. After the service, we're going to have a couple of our elders standing on either side of the room. So if you're interested in accepting that invitation to follow Christ today, we'd love to talk to you. Or if you have questions about our church, if you have something they'd like you to pray with you about, that works too.